everybody, and welcome to episode 6 of Drop the Needle in the Haystack, a podcast where we, using the Forgetify web app, take a listen to tracks on Spotify that have, until this point, not been played, or been played hardly at all. We're not really sure on how it all works out, and we're giving conflicting numbers, but we're trying our best. The spirit of the thing still stands. And my name's Robbie, <laughs> and I'm joined, as always, by Eric and Matt. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, gentlemen. I hate that I knew you would do it. Hello, everyone. We are happy to be here on this fine autumn day. That's right. It's getting colder. It's, the leaves are it's turning. Beautiful. I'm getting spookier. The leaves are turning. It's beautiful outside. So I think we're going to jump right into the episode. But before that, we have a brief sponsored message. All right, Internet. You've heard of bed bugs. But are you ready for bug beds? Finally, a humane solution to those pesky pest troubles. Now, both you and your bed bugs can get a great night's sleep. Made from the finest matchbox lumber and four, yes, four, folded over Charmin Ultra Soft sheets, your bed bugs will feel like they never left your side. No more itchy mornings or stained sheets. Simply move any visible bed bugs to their new bed and finally get the good night's sleep you deserve. Don't wait for relief. Call 1-800-BUG-BEDS. Yes, that's 1-800-BUG-BEDS today. But wait! If you call in the next 30 minutes, we will throw in an extra bug bed for free. So don't delay. Order a bug bed today. It just, it just went on and on, Eric. It was so long. Did you, did you just land this? Was this? Eric told, here's what Eric told me. He told me in, in breathless tones with a puckish look in his eye that he had a bit he wanted to do after the introduction. And I didn't know it was going to be both beds. I thought I thought it was going to be like Raid Shadow Legends or the the Raycon or or Skillshare or something. Right, Blue Apron. No, bed or bug beds. Eric, did you write this? It's good. It's good. It's good, right? Did you write this all down in front of you? He was looking at a script. He definitely wrote it down. I can't believe. Oh, I just have the image of you layering away at this. Eric's like, oh, this is a good one. This is hilarious. <laughs> the guy, they love it. I'm crying. Oh, fuck. Tears of joy. Uh, and <laughs> it went exactly how I planned. <laughs> okay, so Robbie and I both walked into that blind is what you're telling me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we didn't, you know, just jump right into the episode. So I gave him a warning that a bit would happen, but right. okay. I, I had to clear the runway so he could really, really just run it down for us. Christ, Eric. Uh, yeah. well, <laughs> well, that brings us. It's hard, guys. It's hard being this this brilliant. All right. That brilliant. Uh, well, that brings us. To our first selection of the episode is mine. The musician is Johnny Yen Bang. Now, Johnny Yen, Johnny Yen Bang, he's kind of got a few different names over the years. He's a Norwegian, uh, let's see, a synth player and singer. And it looks like he was really active in the late 70s and the 80s. I can see here he was in a few bands called the 
the Norwegian Boys, sounds like a fun one, the Voices of Wonder, some other groups, and it seems like his own group, Johnny Yen Bang, has kind of been a longer-running project that has had a few different people in it. And uh, the selection we're going to listen to now is off the album, and once again, I'm going to have to ask for your uh, lenience with pronunciation, because it's got uh, symbols that we don't have in the English alphabet. That's your debt sure, I think is pretty close, and that roughly translates to do it yourself, I believe. And the track is... The track, track is, is I, I Must Be Wrong. Thank you, Eric. I clicked away from the video. Let's hear I Must Be Wrong. What kind of uh, attracted me right away to this particular track, I like the really, really old and primitive sounding synth sounds. I just love them. I just love it when it sounds like the soundtrack to Leisure Suit Larry or King's Quest. Oh my god. That's my favorite. <laughs> and uh, what I also kind of got from my first listen, it's like, oh, it's it's a lot like, like a talking heads almost. Like kind of a... a quite a sophisticated, maybe, talking heads kind of track, especially in delivery of the singer and the vocalist. What do you guys think? Well, yeah, I've got to say that the synths, I, I just love the entire sound. It, I don't want to say dated, but it's definitely a sound where you can place, like, the decade almost to a T. You said this was, right. like, probably the, the 80s? 80s? Right, the early 80s, right. Yeah, so you can, you can actually, like, hear the technology in the, the production of the sound. But a question I kind of have for you, because I think you're a little more knowledgeable on this stuff than I am. The whole thing, the whole mix sounds very, I don't know, compressed or, or like heavy reverb, right? It, it is sort of mixed in a, in a strange way. Uh, I, and, you know, you do kind of get that sometimes where if you, if you compress everything maybe a little too much, it all starts to blend together and sound a little flat. And I think, especially in the 80s, and I'm really far from an expert on this kind of stuff, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But there's a lot of, like, kind of like in our, in our Darren Rhodes selection from last week, a lot of wet, very big sort of splashes of, uh, of sound. Maybe combined with the, the sound of the synth itself, or the synthesizers themselves, it does have this weird sort of, this weird energy to it. It was the uh, that drum sound that was made famous. Uh, it was made famous with um, Phil Collins, right? Like doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo, yeah, doo -doo. yeah. I don't remember the technical term for what the processing on that drum was, but the whole thing. I wonder. Do you think that was a drum machine for that track? For for I must be wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think probably I could see it. I could see it. I'm not sure exactly. You know how far the technology was in 1980. I think this released, you know, actually right on the year of 80. But um, I don't know. I, if, I, if I had it, to guess, I'd say so. It almost sounds like a drum machine. Almost a little bit evocative of the uh, the old Nintendo, six, uh, the the Super Nintendo actually, kind of like the drum sounds you can get out of that. Right. 
And, and yeah, also... I do keep with a lot of these eighties and and you know these early synth tracks. I do keep coming back to like video game music, early video game music especially, just because you know I guess the they're all working with the same sound cards and stuff, and they sound so so similar sometimes. Like the waveforms and the shapes. I also thought of um, "Take on Me," of course. Right, that's an, another. Okay, thing. yeah, yeah, like especially that synth bass. I like the bass line. Oh yeah. You you talked about recording, and to me, if there had been any crowd noise, I would have believed that this was recorded live. You know, it it almost has. It sounds like it's recorded almost at a distance. So I'm wondering just what kind of environment he was in when he uh, when he laid this down. To me, what immediately stood out was uh, his vocal style. I don't know if you guys remember Ballroom Blitz by the sweet um or by sweet they it kind of i don't know it's a it's a little bit evocative of that these kind of long drawn out syllables also in some way like elvis at times i don't know if i'm imagining it but he just kind of draws out some of these syllables he kind of lets the intonation um, bend a little lower as it goes on yeah it just immediately stood out to me it's very interesting and it's not a singing style that you hear too often today, but seemed really popular at the time. Well, certainly. And I think, that, like I mentioned, the comparison in terms of singing style, like David Byrne of the Talking Heads, very, you know, very, very rhythmic talking almost in, in some ways. Um, it's kind of a very particular kind of delivery. I don't I know if I got the, uh, Elvis, but I can see definitely the ballroom blitz. I, I think the I singing style... Definitely reminds me of um, the Smiths a little bit. Kind of contemporary if we're in that time period, right? The 80s. The Smiths, it's this kind of almost like you can hear the apathy in like their pronunciation. Like the, the words kind of, <laughs> they have a droopy pronunciation. They're not, they're not over-articulating any of the syllables too clearly. And you're right, there is a certain sag to like each of the, the, the core pitch of the syllable, right? Droopy is the right word, yeah. It's you yeah. can hear the cool like they're trying to emanate that that kind of cool sound a little bit through right. the pronunciation. Eric, do you want to introduce your track for us? Matthew, I would love to introduce my track to you. So everyone, I have to say, the forget if I gods have finally blessed me. It is a blessed day for sure, because Christ, today listen to this we finally <laughs> we finally received. What I've been waiting for, a clarinet album. What nobody asked so, for. <laughs> but what everyone wanted, you know? They were afraid to ask for it, afraid that their prayers would not be answered. They didn't but I digress. <laughs> I digress. All right, so this is the Max Rieger uh, Quintet for Clarinet and String Orchestra. It is performed by Ensemble, I believe it's pronounced Oxalis, which is a... Brussels-based contemporary music ensemble, or just music ensemble. They primarily perform chamber music. They've been around since 1993. And its original eight-member um, composition of string quartet, flute, clarinet, and harp is often extended. But in this case, I think the album is just uh, clarinet. There's a flute quintet in there as well, and maybe a piece for harp. So. This was early on, well, not that early, but reasonably early on in the 
ensemble's life cycle. So I'll talk a little bit about Max Rieger and the playing afterwards, but let's get into it. Okay, so that's the beginning of the second movement of the Max Rieger Quintet for clarinet. Um, for those of you at home who don't recognize the name, Max Rieger was kind of the heir to the Germanic tradition after Brahms. He wrote primarily keyboard music and chamber music. He didn't really get into the orchestral stuff nearly as much as some of um, the composers that preceded him but he definitely wrote in that late romantic style. Um, he wrote a lot for clarinet, so I'm, I've been aware of this piece for quite a while. He wrote a quintet, I think at least three sonatas. In general, um, his music is regarded as good, though not quite as good as uh, some of his predecessors, which is why he hasn't become, I think, a standard household name in the... Uh, in classical music tradition. So what I'm hearing in this ensemble, you know, speaking from the point of view of a clarinetist, is the clarinetist has a very uh, European sound. And some of the hallmarks of that are a little bit of a wider um, tone quality, a little more round. In America, the traditional clarinet sound can be a little more, have, have more harmonics to the sound, be a little more in your face than in certain parts of Europe. One thing about the composition that I really like that I'd like to point out is the strings are doing some very interesting uh, slides that you hear, that you start hearing a lot in the um, 20th century. I relate it to Shostakovich and uh, specifically I always think of his fifth symphony. You have a big violin solo that goes da 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 wah, bum, 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 wah. And the violin sliding up the fingerboard, or can I don't know if it's actually written that way. Often performed that way. Yeah, I just I thought that was interesting. It it sounds modern, or it sounds a little more modern than some, you know, standard romantic music, but it's still deeply entrenched in that romantic style. Yeah, uh, this is a nice treat because I know Rieger more through his keyboard works, and I think that's generally where he's more well-known and where he really survives with his, his legacy of, of like expansive uh, repertoire of keyboard works. Um, it's interesting that you kind of note him as the proceeding Brahms, because that makes a lot of sense with the immediate kind of texture of, of this second movement, you said, right? So this, yeah, so this is the second, second movement. movement, then it's probably like, uh, you know, it was becoming a little more popular to put the busy scherzo in place of second instead of third, as was tradition in these larger works. What struck me about this at first was um, I couldn't quite place the meter exactly when uh, it started. You know, it has that busy uh, string line with the kind of spiccato violin playing. But then um, when right. the clarinet starts getting more prominent, it's doing four over six, I think, if, if this is indeed in six. 
If not, then it's just doing a, a good two over three. Not super related, but that just brings me back to I played the Mozart oboe quartet uh, during the last year of my undergrad, which has an expansive section of 4-4 four, four over 6-8, where the oboe actually gets notated into 4-4. Four, four. And I just remember how much fun and how difficult it was uh, to experience that kind of thing in a chamber music setting. I really like those slides. I, I really enjoy the character of that. Like, I, I want to say this piece is almost oozing the Viennese style, like this high Viennese kind of romantic style of the time. And one of the things you guys, uh, or Eric, you mentioned a lot, sort of the the successor to Brahms. Put a, a year to that. About when was this composition written for, for our audience? Yeah, let me double check on the date of composition. Max Rieger lived from, I believe, 1873 to 19, I want to say 17. He died five years after Gustav Mahler. Uh, he was only 43 years old when he died. It, it was in between those two dates, obviously. Give me one second. <laughs> Wait, another yeah, clue. I should have looked up. We're holding it. Well, no, maybe, uh, Matt, Eric, could you maybe speak a little bit to, to that developing tradition? Or, well, maybe it's better put after Brahms, right? That's kind of like one of the, the last of the great canon composers before things start to really diverge in a lot of different directions. And, and like Eric mentioned, I, I, I feel like there's sort of this uh, kind of reckoning, especially for European composers, they have to do with Brahms or, or the previous generation and that manifests itself in a different ways. Could, could I have you speak a little bit to the sort of development of composition and classical music after Brahms and into the 20th century? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, it's funny to bring up after Brahms, you have to talk about the fact that Brahms faced the very same question. Mm. I took a really great class at Peabody with um, Dr. Richard Geruso called the Symphonies of Brahms. And a majority of that class was actually spent examining the symphonies of Beethoven, not majority, but a, a, a majority of the first few weeks was spent examining how Brahms was faced with the, with the task of uh, living up to the legacy of Beethoven, right? right? So it's interesting that Brahms created the very same issue in his wake, of course. Now, um, if you look uh, kind of timeline-wise, there was a big surge of, of composers kind of scrambling to fill that, that void left by uh, Brahms in the classical music world because he was such a titan for his time. And I think the fact that we are looking at a clarinet quintet here is, is really cool because Brahms made such an impact on the clarinet world in his last uh, few years of composing, actually. He came out of retirement simply to write for the clarinet. And the fact that uh, Rieger here chose to write a clarinet quintet just like Brahms did, uh, that connection is, is quite, is quite um, potent there. Uh, what do you think, Eric, kind of with the Brahms clarinet quintet in mind? Yeah, so um, I really like that you brought that up. Brahms in his last few years of life came out of retirement, as you said, to write four pieces for clarinet, a trio with cello and piano, a quintet with string quartet and clarinet, and then two sonatas for clarinet and piano. And I actually just found out that this piece is written also in the last year of Rieger's life. It was written in 1915. He finished writing it December of 1915, and it was published the year of his death in May of 1916. So it's um, 
Yeah, I like the parallel there. Additionally, Rieger's works are often paired with Brahms sonatas. It's not uncommon to see a romantic style, and I'm doing air quotes there, romantic style uh, recital with a Brahms sonata and a Rieger sonata, as he wrote two sonatas at least. And um, I haven't heard the third performed too often, but there is a third out there as well. One album that kind of explores this relationship, uh, so that you can kind of hear the evolving harmonic language in this tradition is um, performed by Guy Yehuda, who is the clarinet professor at, I believe, Michigan State University. He's released an album of the first and second Brahms sonatas and the first and second Rieger sonatas. So it's worth a listen if you're interested in seeing some kind of direct um, evolution of the musical language for that period of time. Yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff that I hadn't really considered for um, the evolution of the romantic language because we tend to examine that mostly through the symphonic lens. So it's, it's nice to see that in such a case study almost of this narrow scope clarinet chamber music world. And uh, really cool to know that Max Rieger was, Rieger was doing other stuff. I don't know when we'll have the opportunity to perform again, but it's definitely on my list of works to get to in the future. And you know what else? It kind of reminds me, especially on the second listen, and maybe this is another thing you can comment on, Matt, is this, uh, we talked about this kind of romantic language or this, you know, writing for strings, especially for uh, orchestra uh, in the style of Brahms. What the quintet kind of reminds me of, like, the scores of Danny Elfman, right? You can almost see, like, a Tim Burton movie scene playing out in the background. And at least to my ears, I hear a lot of, I don't know, maybe a descendant of that kind of symphonic writing in a lot of movie scores, I think. And maybe that's just, just me, but what do you guys think? Well, Danny Elfman, that's a great comparison. I think the very there was a lot of character and nuance to the, the pizzicatos and the spiccato playing uh, the techniques used by the, the strings there, and especially those those very character-infused slides that Eric pointed out. I think you saw a lot more uh, kind of techniques like that evolving almost out of a, probably a marriage of the popular tradition into, into uh, more of this romantic style, especially with Mahler, who infused so much of a kind of very character-driven violin playing into his writing, where you see folk elements even seeping into his music, which was a big deal at the time, right? And this high romantic style is what eventually kind of evolved into that 90s era of, of music uh, from film that we all kind of grew up loving so much, like Danny Elfman films and, um, you know, that, that Danny Elfman-Tim Burton team really shaped like an entire sound for a while. Shall we uh, move on to something completely different now? <laughs> yeah, time for something totally different. Yeah, there's, there's not even a real way to segue into this. So I'll just go ahead and say a little bit about my selection for this week. This is called To Write a Country Song. It's by the artist Dan Hart. And this, I believe, uh, was probably around the early 2010s, if not right on that turn of the decade. Uh, that's from a YouTube video that I was able to find of a live performance by the man himself, Dan Hart. So I don't really think this song needs too much of an introduction because it's it's pretty meta and it does a pretty good job of explaining itself. So here's To Write a Country Song by Dan Hart 
also from the album uh, Santa God and Other Blasphemies. So here we go. Well, I went down to Nashville, turned my songs into a buck. But they all knew I was a fake, even though I drove a truck. They say I got the hat and boots all right, but that's not the concern. Before you do C&W, there's one thing you must learn. To write a country song, you've got to be an alcoholic. Cause drinking lets them big men cry like little babes with colic. Just open up a case of beer and fill their ears with truck stop tears to write a country So, I mean, this song... This song is just great. Uh, <laughs> style, production, everything. The man, the man hits all the nails right on the head, from the tone of voice to the, the twang of the guitar, even. And um, I, I loved seeing your guys' reaction to this, to just you know really blindside you with this one. So I don't want to talk too much about it. I want to hear some of your opinions first. Well, yeah, I was really, and I guess this is just goes to show the fun that comes with some of this forgetify stuff is like that's really funny, you know. It's it's uh, and it's a shame that his YouTube video has only got like you mentioned it had like what seven hundred views? Is that it? Yeah, seven hundred ish. I yeah, I think Dan Hart is deserving of more because you know I like this one, catchy melody, good rhymes. Yeah, really great delivery on some of those lines. Like the punchlines are just set up so great. But uh, Eric, what do you think? Yeah, it's an it's an absolute forgetify gym. I I can't believe that you know this hasn't blown up in some capacity. It, it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me. Week after week, I'm continually surprised by the talent that we're finding that just for whatever reason doesn't have the audience it deserves. I think you mentioned, Matt, that, you know, he said he got death threats for this. And, you it know, was, maybe there's <laughs> it was maybe, maybe a there's a reason why this one. OK, maybe there's a reason this one didn't blow up. But yeah, no, he's great delivery, great voice. Uh, you guys have already really said it all. It's hilarious for anyone who's only heard the first, you know, what, like 30 ish seconds here. It's worth going on to Spotify and listening to the whole thing. It really only gets better. And of course, this is coming entirely from a point of jest. I'm sure this guy didn't move to Nashville because he didn't like country music, you know? I mean, the best part of it is it's a good country song. <laughs> right, yeah. I, yeah. I was going to say, it's kind of like very much in the tradition of the classic uh, storytelling or, or kind of extemporizing you hear in, in, in old country music, right? Or like even down proper. to the even down to the uh, strumming pattern, like mm. it, the, it's absolutely perfect. This, uh, this style of gu the guitar solos, like the way that he's singing the progressions, you can almost feel like a boot with a spur tapping its toe, like as you listen to this song, you know? But yeah, I was about to say, it's a very backbeat. You can feel that beat, you know, happening in the background. You want to tap along. And if you examine the rest of this album, the guy, yeah, the guy clearly has a great sense of humor, uh, quick wit, uh, especially in the live performance. Actually, you can hear how in some of the gaps after his his lines and his punchlines, he leaves a little strumming gap before he starts speaking again because it's just riddled with laughter in the live performance. And I just want to bring up his bio for a second because I was able to find uh, the website of Dan Hart. Now he interestingly here labels his website uh, entertainment for seniors. 
So Dan Hart is a singer and guitarist with a repertoire of hundreds of songs from the 20s through the 70s, and he's sure to please any audience. And uh, me and Robbie actually checked out his uh, his like rap list, and it's huge. The man is clearly a, a master of his his craft. Right. And I almost wonder like if he had a better channel for like um, garnering attention. A song like this in like the early 2010s. This could have caught on like wildfire. I mean, just think of like Axis of Awesome with like the four chord song, right? Right. Yeah, no, you get like a YouTube production yep. team to to put a fun video with this. That's uh that's money right there. And I Absolutely. think even even Couldn't like diehard country fans would probably really appreciate some of the irony of this song. I mean, I'm not a country music lover, but I have a few friends who uh, are and you could you could almost imagine like someone being like you're right that is us the best kind of <laughs> jokes right you can laugh at yourself with them yeah and yeah i, I think it yeah. is really impressive and it's sort of in that same vein of all the talent you find even on these random tracks it's just there's so many talented musicians and performers like dan hart who's got like matt said we saw his thing and it's organized by decade and it's like just song after song after song all memorized so he's Clearly a consummate showman, you know, professional, well put together, lots of songs. And it takes it takes a lot of skill to do that kind of thing, you know, not to mention the writing. Yeah, of course. I mean, honestly, just give the give the man's album like a listen. And some of these are absolutely hysterical. I was unironically like busting at the sides, laughing at some of these punchlines. And of course, you know, I see um, to contact Dan Hart. He's got his email here. So, Dan, if you're listening and you want to be on the show, as always, Please uh, just come come on through. We'd love to have you on. Right. Or if eventually we're allowed to have parties and gatherings again, maybe consider Dan Hart sometime in the future, the non-pandemic future, for your next gathering. He'd be awesome to hear live. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's much funnier live. Not to say that it's not funny to begin with. Yeah. But I think that uh, that about wraps it up for me with uh, To Write a Country Song by Dan Hart. So you fellas want to move on to our segment where we talk about what we're listening to this week. Eric, Eric why don't you start like, us off? Yeah, Eric's been bringing some real intense energy this episode. Let's see what he's got. All right, I've got nothing but gems today. We're going to continue along with our clarinet quintet journey, and we're going to move. <laughs> All right, guys, keep it together. Keep okay. it together. <laughs> I'm with you. All right, so this is written, this is the clarinet quintet written by Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, who was known as the Black Mahler of his day. I believe he was prominent in the early 1900s. And it is a truly phenomenal work that has been lost to time, but I expect to see it make a resurgence soon. And I will definitely be one of the first among the wave of clarinetists that I am sure will be playing this to play it as soon as we are able to get back into the hall. But again, um, that's Samuel Coleridge Taylor, clarinet quintet in F sharp, F sharp minor. All right. Robbie, what did you listen to this week? Well, Eric, this week I listened to the album Where the River Goes by Wolfgang Muchspiel. 
he's a jazz musician and it's a quintet that you might recognize some other names with you know if you're in the modern jazz scene you got brad meldow you got larry grenadier i think is on a few tracks so big names big names in the jazz world and uh, i hadn't heard of wolfgang but it was a good good listen for me this week i have been uh very much a I, I, am i going to be allowed to say this on the podcast i i don't know we've we've already run into this issue uh very much a basic bitch uh blackpink's new album came out last week oh so that's right it is a full-length eight-track album which um, i don't think the fan base has gotten from them yet and uh, i've been kind of digging into it because it's a very uh, interesting album it's got collaborations with selena gomez and uh cardi b actually which is wow. the collab nobody was expecting and none of us knew that we definitely needed. And, um, you know, they released two of the singles during the summer, but the title track for this album has been really sticking with me. It's called uh, Lovesick Girls, and it has like this awesome kind of Katy Perry, I want to say like 2011-ish kind of dance hall pop sound to it. Really cool thing for me to see uh, getting explored by the K-pop industry. But Eric, are you going to give us our usual sign-off? Yeah, so I think I'm, yeah, I would be happy to do that. I think uh, I'm lagging behind you guys a little bit. Mm. Um, Ruined but the show once again. Eric was ruined For the everyone show. listening. Yeah. Wait, hold on, hold on. We've got to do all of our, don't forget to follow the show on Spotify and like us and review us wherever you see the show on Apple iTunes. That really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter at Drop Haystack and on Instagram and Facebook at Drop the Needle in the Haystack. And now... Eric can finish the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next week.